Hello and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, a UK charity that provides information and support for those who live with pain. Pain Concern was awarded first prize in the 2009 NAP Awards in Chronic Pain and with additional funding from the Big Lottery Fund's Awards for All programme and the Voluntary Action Fund Community Chest, this has enabled us to make these programmes. No matter how much pain you're in, no matter how difficult things are for you, no matter how depressing and sad this has made you feel, you're not broken. It's simply that the strategy that you're using to try to live your life with these conditions is not a workable strategy. She tells you as it is real. She tells you that the disease is not curable. But she picks you up and she builds you back up again in terms of getting a new lifestyle and, and confidence to do things. And to me, she's great. She's my hero, actually. <laughs> More on those acts of heroism and hope later in the programme. I'm Paul Evans, and in this series of Airing Pain, we've been highlighting different approaches to pain management throughout the UK. Now, the Astley Ainsley Hospital in Edinburgh provides a range of services for those with chronic pain conditions, and John McLennan is the lead physiotherapist for the Lothian Chronic Pain Service there. I asked him how he assesses somebody who walks through his door for the first time. Firstly, we'll spend a lot of time talking with the patient and them explaining to us the impact of their pain on their day-to-day life, on their quality of life, the impact it has on what they can do or can't do from a 24-hour perspective, but also from things that they can no longer do, like sport or go dancing or go out and meet friends. But we will also look for some objective measure of what patients can or can't do. And a colleague, Vicky Harding, put together a battery of measures that we use here. So we get patients to do four things. We get them to walk for five minutes... We see how far they can walk in that five minutes. We get them to uh, do some stairs for a minute. We get them to uh, do a reach test and a couple of other measures that we use. At the same time that we're doing that, we also look for what's called pain behavior. So they may hold their breath. They may grimace. They may rub the painful part. And there's a way in which we can assess in a standardized way the level of pain behavior that a patient exhibits while they're doing these tasks. And finally, we also ask patients to rate their pain before and after they do these tasks. And usually, the pain will increase because they've been physically active. And that gives us an idea of how doing things impacts on patients' pain. Because one of the things we will teach patients here is how to pace their activities. So how to do things without increasing their pain. How closely do you work with the psychologists? Very closely indeed. Most patients have a joint assessment. They will meet with the physiotherapist and the psychologist. At the moment we're going through a process of change looking at at different ways of doing that. But up until now, that has been a joint assessment. So we've had the patient, the psychologist, and the physiotherapist all in the room at the same time. At the end of the assessment, we will agree a treatment plan with the patient, which may or may not involve the psychologists. If it does, so if the patient is going to see both the physiotherapist and the psychologist individually, then they'll be quite close liaison between 
the two professions in terms of the patient's progress. My name is Dr Leanne Nicholas. I'm a chartered clinical psychologist and I work half-time here in the Lothian Chronic Pain Service. We're very much based on a biopsychosocial model. That means that we look at the biological aspects of pain and how it's affected someone, what medications, etc., they've tried and whether surgery, etc., has been offered in the past. We then look at the, some of the psychological aspects of pain, how that pain has affected the way they're feeling within themselves, how the pain has affected their activity levels, changes in, in patterns, so it can be changes in occupational functioning, in work, in social functioning. People often find with chronic pain they can't participate as much in hobbies and interests that they used to enjoy. And we also look a little bit at what life was like prior to the pain to get a whole sense of a person. Biopsychosocial would say that our minds and our bodies are not two separate things, that they interact with each other. If I ask someone to give me an example that can help them see those links, they would maybe say, well, if I wake up in the morning and I'm really sore, I know it's going to be a bad day. And so I have a thought in my mind that you know, this, this is going to be a pretty rubbish day, then might feel a bit more down, and then the way I'm going to approach the day, what the activities I had planned might therefore change. So we can see how those three areas, the, the physical area, the way someone's thinking then feeling, can impact on the way someone then reacts in terms of behaviour. Sometimes that can then get into unhelpful patterns where it can be linked in a vicious cycle. And those are the types of things that we will look for in assessment because that's where we can maybe introduce some coping strategies that can help to break those links. And they often, by the time they come to our service, they're feeling stuck with their pain. So we're looking at areas that we can introduce new strategies or strategies that people have tried before and maybe didn't work then, but might work now with a bit of support. Can you give me an example of how people might feel stuck? One example would be with activity patterns. Sometimes people feel that they got into a battle with their pain and they try and push into their pain by keeping up all the activities that they want to get done in a day. But that can result in feeling sore and exhausted and it can make people feel quite down on themselves when they've not managed to achieve the things that they wanted to achieve. So this kind of pattern of doing too much and then suffering for it and having to take time out to rest can be really demoralising over time. So that's one of the patterns we'd look for and to help people begin to work out what their limits are, what they can manage and do those activities in a paced way so that they can gradually work up to the level they'd like to get back to without pushing into the pain and flaring the pain system up. We also run a pain management programme here, which is a 12-week programme, and that is delivered by psychologists and physiotherapists, the nurses involved as well, as is the assistant psychologist. So, again, there's a very close working relationship between all of us as a team. What happens on the pain management programme? It's an opportunity for patients to practice putting into practice the ideas that other people have found helpful. So one of the things is they start an exercise program. Many patients are not involved in any kind of exercise program aimed at helping maintain fitness because people are frightened of hurting themselves, uh, less able than they used to be. Some people are fearful of making things worse So we have an exercise programme which is aimed at not exacerbating people's fear of movement and activity. So there's a programme that starts at a very low level. It can go quite far. Once we've got the programme going, we will then start to look at 
individualizing it. So if someone's got a knee problem, then we'll look at what they should be doing for their knee problem. If they've got a back problem or a neck problem, we'll give them individual tailored exercises. And it can go to a level where you're looking at cardiovascular exercise. So we can start to help people either speed up because they've slowed down or take on cardiovascular work if that's appropriate. We'll also look at education. People have unhelpful beliefs, if you like, about what's wrong with them. So we will teach them about pain, about pain mechanisms. We'll teach them about anatomy, posture, that sort of thing. We'll teach them how to pace their activities. The exercise program is designed around the idea of pacing your activity, so not making your pain worse. So we'll then extend that and teach people how to go about their day-to-day activities without making their pain worse. We'll also teach them how to manage their thoughts. Quite often, people's thoughts are perhaps unhelpful. So the psychologists will help people develop a way of assessing their thoughts and managing their thoughts in a way that's less unhelpful. John McLennan, lead physiotherapist for the Lothian Chronic Pain Service. And before him, you heard Dr Leanne Nicholas, clinical psychologist at the Astley Ainsley Hospital in Edinburgh. And you can read a patient's view of attending the hospital's pain management programme at Pain Concerns website. That's painconcern.org.uk. Just look for Pain Management, a new lease of life under the articles about pain heading. Now, Dr David Gillanders is a clinical psychologist who shares his time between the University of Edinburgh and the Lothian Chronic Pain Service. For his clinical work, he uses a model called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT. Now, to me, the word acceptance has a ring of resignation about it. Is that really what it's about? People have sometimes been told by well-meaning health professionals, oh, the trouble is you don't accept what's happened in your life. When we talk about acceptance from an acceptance and commitment therapy point of view, that's not the kind of definition of acceptance that we mean. What we really mean is an active choice to let go of struggling with whatever the current circumstances that someone is having to deal with. So often, I mean, in terms of the clinical work that I do, I would, I would very rarely use the word acceptance. Instead, I would use the word willingness. Are you willing to have your medical condition as it is and to let go of struggling, let go of needing to change it or needing to remove it before you take needed steps towards things in your life that matter to you. What we would do in the typical assessment process, assessment engagement process, would be to provide a safe relationship where the person feels able to talk about the ways in which their condition, whatever it is, uh, has affected them, uh, some of the impacts that it's had upon their life. We then further ask them to explore what are the things that you've been doing to try and deal with this condition. And we would we'd want to get them to generate really pretty much an exhaustive list of all the things that they have been doing to try and deal with this condition. And we then ask them the really difficult question. And we do this with heart and with sensitivity. We ask them to take each of the things that they've just described about what they've been doing to deal with this condition. And we say, how well has it been working? in terms of you living the kind of life that you would like to live. Is it effective for me or not? If the answer is yes, we say, great, keep doing those things. If the answer is no, then 
maybe something has to change. Maybe something different is possible. So if I come to you and I say, listen, I want to walk up Snowden, I want to walk from mm. John Crooks to Land's End, mm. I want to do all those things. Yeah. Every time I try to do it, I just blow myself out. Yes. There is something wrong with, the, with my thought pattern. Well, first of all, I wouldn't suggest that there's something wrong with your thought pattern. We would, first of all, recognise... I notice the way that you talk about those things and how your eyes light up when you speak about the value that's in there for you, the value of being outdoors in nature, the value of, of doing something active... Perhaps there might be other values in there for you, like, for example, there's someone that I always do these kinds of walks with, and it's, it's connecting with that person that really matters to me. So we might make it that we help you to connect with what is it about those particular activities that, that you really care about. And if it is the case that those activities really aren't possible to you, we might try and figure out with you what are some other ways that we could get that value into your life that may, might not necessarily be walking up Snowden, but might be, for example, doing some other activity with that friend that you usually do that with, or that might be, for example, some other way of accessing nature or, or whatever it is the particular value is about there. More specifically, what we'd also do is we'd, we'd say, okay, well, what have you been doing to try and get back to that p- part of your values And in general, when we do that piece of work with someone, we are able to help them get more in touch with the idea that the strategy that they have been working on has been, once I get rid of my condition, then I will start to do the things that matter to me. Not always, but that's that's generally a strategy that people are operating under. And what we ask is, is it working? If it isn't working, then maybe the strategy needs to be changed. Now, one of the important implications of that is that that very often we're giving a message to people that no matter how much pain you're in, no matter how difficult things are for you, no matter how depressing and sad this has made you feel, you're not broken. It's simply that the strategy that you're using to try to live your life with these conditions is not a workable strategy. Now, there are certain values whereby if we break it down into smaller steps and use a very behavioural type of pacing strategy that is designed to very um, carefully and slowly gradually build up someone's functional capacity, someone's tolerance for activity, that for some people, climbing the mountain might well be an achievable goal for them in the long term if it's done in this kind of slow, careful, graduated way. For some people, it might not be that that's the case for them. And that what we would want to do would be to try and help them to come up with more specific, concrete, achievable steps, but linked in this general direction of their values, of what it is that they care about, so that there's always a sense that they have a direction that they're headed in. That's the acceptance. Uh-huh. Where does commitment If you're a person who's struggled with chronic pain for an awful long time, and you have fears that if I do activity, it's going to injure me, it's going to hurt more, that then you set yourself a goal of, right, I'm going to, I'm going to take a short walk in the countryside because that's linked to this goal of maybe one day I might be able to climb Snowdon. Uh, but in, in the here and now, it's linked to this value of being at one with nature, of getting fresh air, etc. That as you begin, even kind of on that first few steps of the walk, your mind is likely to be giving you stuff like, this is going to hurt, this is difficult, 
I better just go back to the car, or I better go home, or why did Dr. Galando suggest this in the first place, or etc., etc. So when your mind is giving you all these kind of sort of, in some ways, bullying, critical attacks, well, the stance that you have towards that stuff is really critical, really important, that it's fairly unlikely that you're going to kind of get rid of those kind of thoughts or conquer them or defeat them. So we want you to try and encourage a sort of a, a willingness and acceptance to have these thoughts as they are, as thoughts, as difficult thoughts, but nonetheless simply thoughts, and to in that moment commit to the behavior that will lead you in the direction that you most want to go. So the idea behind acceptance and commitment therapy, and I, I use this all the time with people I work with, is that actually it's very simple, but it's not easy. Dr. David Gillanders, so what's the evidence that acceptance and commitment therapy has real value for those with chronic conditions? Nuno Ferreira is one of his doctorate students at the University of Edinburgh. He's been researching its efficacy on people with irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is the most common functional gastrointestinal disorder. So we developed a few questionnaires to look into into this particular uh, concept of acceptance. And the results that are coming back are basically if they have a more accepting stance, if they continue to engage in activities that are important for them, they're more likely to have better outcomes, whether it's quality of life, depression, anxiety, or even uh, in terms of uh, symptom severity, which is quite curious because, in a way, acceptance and commitment therapy or the, the model itself, it's not prone to reduce symptoms, to reduce uh, the experience of symptoms. What we've done, we've taken uh, a model that's been used successfully before with, uh, with other types of conditions, uh, which is to do a very small group intervention, very short group intervention. Uh, in this case, we used a one-day workshop where people were invited to come in. We would walk them through the model, through the s- several steps of the model, and then we followed that with a workbook that we've, uh, that we've prepared uh, so that people can take what they've gotten from the workshop and then, with the help of the workbook, try to engage in those steps in a period of, say, about two months. We also got back in touch with uh, with, our, with the patients that participated in the in the workshops, you know, two months and six months after to see how they were doing, and the results that came out was basically, you know, improvement across the board in terms of everything, in terms of symptom severity, quality of life, less engagement with uh, things like avoidant behaviors, uh, and more engagement with valued activities. So there was uh, behaviorally there was uh, this shift in how people approach their illness. And even things like, you know, the frequency with which they had certain cognitions about their illness, even that changed. In a way, we, we're hypothesizing this was because these became less relevant to their lives. Uh, so they took a step back and said, okay, I'm having these thoughts. These thoughts are part of my illness experience. And I can have this illness experience while at the same time having a valued life. And that's where we see the shift in behavior. Instead of, you know, I need to get rid of my illness experience in order to have a valued life, we had a more, I can have it and a valued life. That's Nuna Ferreira of Edinburgh University.
You're listening to Airing Pain with me, Paul Evans, and I'd just like to remind you that whilst we believe the information and opinions on Airing Pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she's the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, I'm returning to the Astley Ainsley Hospital in Edinburgh, not to the consulting rooms this time, but to join Margaret Kerr. She's the hydrotherapy pool coordinator for the Lothian branch of the charity Back Care. Hydrotherapy is exercises that have been taught by a physiotherapist in a higher than normal temperature pool. It is... Not a quick fix for people, but it is a tool to encourage them to start exercising their muscles. And when these muscles are toned up a wee bit better, hopefully they would move on to some other form of exercise. We don't only take people with back pain, we take people with more or less any kind of pain. Whether it's fibromyalgia, arthritis, we've had people with knee replacements, hip replacements. I don't turn people away. I suppose the theory is that in water, that's taking all the pressure of... That's right, and it means that for a lot of people, it frees them up. And if they've maybe had muscles that are in spasm, automatically going into warm water, what happens to your muscles? They relax. If you go to a pool that's too cold your muscles are not going to relax. And most leisure pools are too cold for people with chronic pain. What sort of temperatures are we talking about, your hydrotherapy pool? I would say it's the temperature not far off of having a really quite a warm bath. The other thing with the hydrotherapy pool is the empathy people have with other people that are using it. I always say, now, you're not going into that pool and start moaning about all your pain. We all know when we're not just quite right. And sometimes somebody will say, oh, have you tried such and such? I go to this sort of exercise. I find Tai Chi helps. I find Pilates helps. It's a very good tool for a start with people to find out what's right for them. Whether they carry on using the pool, that's fine. Whether they use it for... Two months, three months, six months, for years, it doesn't matter if they find it's helpful. How do people get to use it? Do they book it through you? They book it through me normally. I book them in with a taster session, first of all, of three half-hour slots on a Tuesday night with our physio. If somebody needs more than that, that's not a problem because some people are just not confident enough to carry on without the physio being on hand that's okay we have two physios at present one's on maternity leave unfortunately but we have Lorraine as well and she is a pain management orientated physio which to my mind they look at things differently do you want to go through and see the pool yes please this is Lorraine, our physio. In the pool is Derek, Catherine, Joy and Asha. My name is Lorraine Rahimian and I'm a physiotherapist. And you're actually standing in the pool. The first thing I notice is it is very hot. It is very hot, very hot. Why is that? Because we need the the heat to help 
there's hot water, warm water. So it's, it's to help soothe the aches and pains for the patients who come to do exercises in the water. So how are you helping them? Well, the valuable thing, I think, is it's a community. People are all here with similar problems, as in chronic pain. And so they come and they do exercises in the water, which they would find difficult to do on land, because the buoyancy of the water um, is an assistance for them. So the water is taking the strain away, really? It takes the weight. I see the gentleman here. Derek. Derek Bowles. You've got a rubber ring on your foot underneath the water and you're just raising your leg up and down. Well, when I first came here, I couldn't even lift it four inches. But, but with the range assistance, we've managed to slowly get this joint more mobile and it's been absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Which joint is that? It's my left hip. Um, I've got a, a peculiar disease called Paget's. It's actually um, seized this joint... Yes, so what Lorraine has done, she's given me exercises to get the joint pliable and so I can actually walk again. She's my hero, actually. Why is that? Well, uh, it first started in terms of going on the pain management course. She tells you as it is real. She tells you that the disease is not curable, but she picks you up and she builds you back up again in terms of getting a new lifestyle and and confidence to do things and to me she's great and now great this week I got the sign off from the doctor that I can actually go back to work two weeks for two days a week and that's after well three years I've been in treatment and rehabilitation and everyone here thinks I've done brilliantly because people here have taken six or more years to do what I've done but it's Lorraine and I'm going to say Joan as well Joan great Graham. team they're a great team. They're really caring, but really thorough. They understand. It's, it's very personal. Each particular case is personal, and they know how to get you motivated, because it's also about self-help, and they actually get you to say, well, look, go here, go here. And to me, it's great. So hydrotherapy isn't just about your hip joints? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. It's, it's the whole group. It's about understanding, getting little tips... And then suddenly, from that tip, in terms of a spark, suddenly you get a blaze because these guys don't say no. They say, well, you can do it. Whatever you're giving him, you ought to bottle it. Yep. <laughs> no, no, they're good. They're good. Her and Joan are... This is Joy. Hello. Joy has back, back pain. And how is the hydrotherapy helping you, Joy? Well, it loosens... I can do exercises here that I find difficult to do on land. What sort of exercises are you? Rotation. Just general general strengthening um, against the resistance of the water. Mm -hmm. So how long have you been coming here? A couple of months. But my back is a long-standing program Mm -hmm. and I have managed to, to work all my life. But... At odd times, things have gone wrong, and mm. I've come and mm. had hydrotherapy. How do you start mm. working with something like Joy? Um, I think the first thing is we start at a very low level and pace up. So we introduce pain management techniques really into the advice we give. Joy, mm-hmm. would you mm-hmm. agree? Yes, yes. You try and do things in stages and mm-hmm. chunks. And Lorraine always has another tip to help with daily living. What sort of tips do you find helpful? 
the bar on a in a pub apparently there's a bar that is along at the bottom so I opened my cupboard door in the kitchen and I put my foot over there and it eases the sciatic but she, she spoke about it she talked about the bar in the pub didn't you <laughs> I think a lot of the patients also benefit from doing balance work in the water so it's not particularly specific to joints and spines you know it's the whole person well I know that tomorrow I will be very good and I'll be able to walk a long way, and walking suits me. To try and have a holistic approach, I would say. And the chat is good fun as well, isn't it? <laughs> and that's the end of this edition of Airing Pain. You can download this and all the previous editions from our website at painconcern.org.uk. But I'll leave you with Nuno Ferreira and some thoughts on acceptance and commitment therapy from his hopefully soon-to-be-published research and workbook. At the end, we have a poem that sort of encapsulates what the whole model is about. I might have flaws, live anxiously and sometimes get irritated, but I do not forget that my life is the world's biggest enterprise, and it's up to me not to let it go bankrupt. To be happy is to recognize that it's worth living, besides all challenges, incomprehensions or periods of crisis. It is not to let ourselves be a victim of our problems and to become the author of our own story. It's to cross deserts outrageously, but still be able to find your own oasis in the deepest of your soul. It's to be thankful each morning for the miracle of life. To be happy is not to be afraid of your own feelings. It's to know how to speak about yourself. It is to have the courage to hear a no. It is to have the security to hear a critique, even an unfair one. And if I have rocks in my way, I shall keep them all. One day I'll build a castle.